mind by nature is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as the torments that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces known as the torments that we suffer. So when you reflect back over the day of our practice here, and you consider the times of the day when you were uh, less than totally satisfied, what was going on? Eh, Feeling disappointed, sense of struggle, maybe a little anxious, a little fretful, a little depressed, a little despairing, maybe wanting something other than what was happening. Uh, These are the forms of uh, tormented mind states that we experience on retreat. And in our life, we're pretty familiar with these and even maybe more enduring or severe sometimes imposing uh, states of mind that cause us to feel um, less than okay, not satisfied, suffering, uh, unhappy. And the Buddha said that all of these experiences of less than utter contentment are caused by forces that visit the mind. They're not who we are. They're not inherent in being human. They're not intrinsic to being human. They're not even instinctual. But that they're forces that visit the mind due to their own causes and conditions. And the understanding that the Buddha is suggesting is that when the mind is free of these visitors, then it's pure. It's shiny. It reflects, it sees, it it knows clearly, oh, this is the way things are. And it abides in some harmonious relationship with all things. So when we hear this comment by the Buddha, we should inquire, really, well, what is it that we need to do to recognize this recognize these tormented states of mind? How can we work with them? And how are we going to recognize the absence of the torments in the mind? Will we, rec- will we even recognize what the untormented mind looks like, feels like, or how it's experienced? Utejaniya says of these tormented, vi- tormenting visitors to the mind, it is not you who removes these torments. Wisdom does the job. So it gives us a clue really as to how to understand them and how to work with them. Because the goal is not just to get rid of them. We can get rid of them. You can distract yourself. You can uh, turn your attention elsewhere. You can keep yourself busy. uh, And we can temporarily avoid 
many of these visitors to the mind. But to actually live and abide in our life so that we're predominantly free of them takes some, something else. And what the Sayadaw is pointing to is it takes understanding them. So you know, to understand something deeply, yourself, a flower, the weather, a pet, you have to spend a lot of time with it, with yourself. You just have to really want to become intimate, interested, knowledgeable about this thing, this behavior, or this being, or this entity. And so too with these tormenting states of mind. In order to understand them, we really have to approach them with this interest, intimacy, to become deeply familiar with them so that we understand their ways and means and uh, how they entice us and how they entangle us in their suffering. And so all of the suffering, all of these torments that visited you today, that came and appeared in your mind, we should understand that they're actually the vehicle for our awakening. They're not a They're not a judgment of how well you're doing or how poorly you're doing. But rather they're the tool, they're the the fuel, really, of the work that we have to do to really understand them. And to understand them, we have to be with them, we have to connect with them, we have to experience them, we have to really inquire of their nature. And so whatever time you spent today observing, being with, noticing, any of these tormented states of mind is time well spent. Maybe it wasn't pleasant. (laughs) The Buddha didn't say it's going to be pleasant. But nevertheless, that's what's required if we wish to understand. So I want to speak about these um, torments, how they work, how to work with them, so that you can practice with confidence and with assurance or knowledge of how to practice effectively so that when, as will inevitably happen, other torments visit the mind, you're not overwhelmed, you're not bummed out, you're not depressed, you're not judging yourself as being ineffective, you're not thinking the practice doesn't work, but you're understanding, oh, here's, here's the work that's to be done. This is the very place to develop the continuity of awareness, the willingness to really become intimate with unpleasant experience in order to know it, to really understand something that we don't yet understand. You know, we've lived, we've, we've lived with these visitors to the mind for a long time. In fact, they're so familiar that it's almost as if they're not visitors, but they really own the house. (laughs) And sometimes we think that they have taken up permanent residence. But that's not so. For as often as they visit, uh, they're just visitors. 
So we should understand that these um, states of mind, they're, they're so habitual, they're so familiar, they're so re- they recur so often that we take them for granted. And this is a big, well, mistake. It's a big source of our uh, being willing to abide with them. Just kind of like, well, you know, I'm depressed. Or, you know, I'm anxious. It's, it's just how I am. No, it's not. It's not how you are. This is a visitor to the mind that distorts our perception. Uh, allowing us to assign some value and meaning to this experience beyond what the experience actually has. This is delusion. So we want to understand that these are visitors, or these visitors to the mind are deeply conditioned, reactive habits of mind. Interestingly, they can only persist as long as we're not aware of them. I mean, really aware of them. We may see them out of the corner of our eye and just tolerate them, but that's not really being mindfully aware of them. That's just like being entangled in them. The interesting thing about these, all of these tormenting visitors to the mind is that they're fueled by restlessness. Now, restlessness in this use of the word means that they're fueled by thinking that we're not aware of. Restlessness is the wandering mind. The wandering mind that just wanders off, you don't know it's wandered, it gets entangled in some story, or many stories, and all the while it's doing that, it is kind of cultivating and strengthening these tormenting states of mind. So we want to understand that when the mind wanders off into la-la land, it's not benign wandering. Just because you're not aware of it doesn't mean that it's not harmful. It really is dangerous because to the extent that we... Mm, wander, so that the mind wanders, or the mind just reflects in this aimless, roundabout, circular, familiar, unrecognized way, it just reaffirms wrong view over and over and over again. And unbeknownst to us, our wrong views about ourselves, about happiness, about what's possible in life, about what awareness is, about what the Dharma is, about the possibilities of disentangling, our understanding about them, all these topics, becomes warped. They become kind of conventional knowledge or conventional language, not dharma, not a dharma view of them at all. And to to the degree that they become stronger and they have their way and they have their say with us, when push comes to shove and we have to make decisions in our life or we have to respond to well, the unfolding conditions of our life, they will exert controlling influence, even though we haven't seen them in operation. So they're they're dangerous in this way. The restless mind, the wandering mind, the mind that is not noticed as it kind of ruminates is really uh, building up a powerful force of delusion in the mind that has an inordinate predominant uh, conditioning effect on how we live our life. 
They're also all accompanied by delusion, some form of ignorance or delusion. And I want to make a distinction. It's kind of an artificial distinction between ignorance and delusion, but one that you can understand. Ignorance is when we really don't know what's going on, like when the mind wanders off on a train of thought and you didn't notice that it wandered. And while it's wandering in that train of thought, you don't, you don't know what you're thinking. You don't know if you're sitting, standing, walking, male, female, age. You don't know anything. Totally ignorant of what's going on. Not that you're ignorant. It's just that the mind is just completely unknowing of what's going on. And we've all had, haven't we, today, experienced that quality of mind? Only recognizing it when awareness reawakens and notices, oh, the mind has been lost in thought, maybe even recognizing where it has been in its lostness, and now it's found again. So that's ignorance. But there's another kind of delusion that often accompanies these visitors to the mind, and it doesn't obscure the object we may see the object, we may hear the sound, we may see the person, we may see the, we may be consciously reflecting on the thought or the idea. We're not ignorant of the object which is commanding our attention in that moment, but we're understanding it wrongly. So what happens when desire enters the mind? Desire influences and kind of visits the mind it has the characteristic of, we could say, blinding the mind to the faults of the object. We're looking at this person, we're looking at this new car, we're looking at this achievement, accomplishment, experience, and we're saying, hey, this is all good. This is so good. I want it. You know, and if all we see is the pleasant aspect of something, we'll want it because there's nothing to put the brakes on. There's nothing bad about it. There's nothing unpleasant about it. That's what desire does in the mind. It causes the mind to see only the pleasant aspect of what it's looking at or what it's experiencing. On the contrary, or on the other hand, when aversion enters the mind, it has the effect, it has the characteristic of causing the mind to see only the unpleasant aspect of that person, that behavior, that event, that thing, and we'll have aversion to it. It's not through any fault of our own, that's just the very nature of attachment or craving or aversion. And so we need to recognize the unique characteristic of attachment and aversion when they arise because while we're seeing the object we're not understanding it correctly. And an interesting thing happens. One day you can wake up and you can look at this, well, car, house, job, person and say, wow, 
just what I need, just what I want. Nothing wrong with it. I want that. And we set about pursuing with all of our strategies and all of our scheming to get what we want. And then, you know, the full moon sets and the new moon rises. We look at wake up another day and we look at that same person, thing, accomplishment, achievement, status, car, whatever it is. We look at it and all we can see is the unpleasant aspect of it. Same thing, same person. Seen differently because of visitor to the mind. And now all we can do is like, I don't like it, I don't need it, I don't want it, I hate it, it bothers me, it's irksome, it's tiresome, it's... And the interesting thing is, when we have the thoughts of desire, we believe them. We believe this is the way it really is. And when we have the thoughts of aversion, we also think this is really the way it is. We believe ourselves in both, in both situations. We are so, uh, let's say, our wisdom is such that it's susceptible to the visitors to the mind. So when accompanied by attachment, you know, we experience it as craving, obsession, desire, wanting, yearning, uh, fantasizing, futuring, a lot of futuring, in the form of or fueled by desire. When aversion accompanies delusion and um, aversion enters the mind, there's, there's different, there's a spectrum I should say, of aversion. The grossest forms of aversion are hatred, rage, uh, anger. A more mild form or maybe an internalized or internalized forms of aversion are fear, depression, frustration, disappointment. And the subtler forms of aversion are annoyance, impatience, uh, feeling irritated, we can see in our own experience when we're feeling any of these, or when any of the when the mind is visited by any of these states, that we we identify with them. Not only do we say, "Oh, oh, the mind is filled with uh, desire," or the mind is filled with anger, we say, "I'm always." angry. We kind of uh, eternalize a momentary perception. And not only do we eternalize a momentary perception to, I'm always this way, we identify with it and say, not only am I always angry, I'm an angry person. And now we've, we've solidified this identity around a momentary perception. Now it's momentary, visitor to the mind. It comes frequently enough for us to say, I'm always like this. And then we get identified with it as a personality trait, as if it is inherent in who we are. And when that gets that solid, when the belief gets that solid in the mind, it is really tenacious to, it's very challenging to uproot it, to arrest it and to uproot it from the mind. Because we've invested so much belief in it and we have developed so many strategies and schemes 
and ways of thinking about it to justify it and to justify acting on it in our life that so much of our sense of ourself is totally tied up with it. So what we're looking at when we come to practice like this and we see these habits in the mind, they look pretty overwhelming, don't they? You know, sometimes we get we get ensnared in some visitor to the mind and it just feels like, it feels like this is the way it's going to be forever. Or this is the way it just is all the time. Except when I f- I'm asleep or distracted by something else. It's not. It feels that way, but it doesn't really act that way. So we want to begin to recognize these characteristics of these visitors to the mind so that we can begin to um, disassemble them, deconstruct them from their position of power in the mind. We should understand that these tormented states or these torments that visit the mind, they really take the fullness of our life away from us. They obstruct our ability to live a full life. Just take fear, for example. Just reflect in your own life how much you have not even attempted because of fear. Things that we just don't even consider possible whether we're socially afraid or economically afraid or physically afraid or psychologically afraid. We just don't even go there. Now there's, there's wise fear and there's a lot of stupid fear. Fear that is just, you know, uh, an unwillingness to experience unpleasantness. When if we can turn our attention around, recognize, oh, this fear is an unwillingness to experience this unpleasantness. And we recognize that, then we can approach this unpleasantness gently, not as if it's not there, but just nudge ourselves, urge ourselves, encourage ourselves to open to this unpleasantness, whatever, whatever it might be. And an interesting thing happens. All it takes is the willingness to experience unpleasantness consciously. To begin to un- overcome fear. We don't overcome fear by, you know that, you know that, I guess it's a name brand, no fear, like macho, no fear. That's not no fear, that's denial. What I'm talking about is fear, full fear. Looking fear in the face being willing to not say no fear, but to say, yeah, this, this is fear. I, I, I can handle that. Because it's really our resistance to unpleasantness. Huh. When you think about that, resistance to unpleasantness. Did anybody get through the day without a lot of unpleasantness in the body or in the mind? <laughs> right? We, I don't know about you, but there was, there was, there's some unpleasantness. Whether it's hunger or eating too much or the weather's a little hot or you know, just the 
inevitable aches and pains of just being aware of a body. All of these generate a little, little forms of aversion, irritation, impatience, fear, anxiety. So we, we are limited in our ability to experience the fullness of a human life by these visitors to the mind. But we should understand also that these visitors to the mind, they're not accidental. They're not a mistake. They're not your fault. They arise due to causes and conditions. When the causes and conditions are present, these states of mind will arise. Now, one of the causes and conditions for the arising of any of them is unwise attention. When we don't pay careful attention, these things sneak in. As we pay careful attention, they may come knocking at the door, but we see them. So we should understand that these visitors to the mind are also part of the Dharma. And because they are a natural phenomena that arise due to causes and conditions, they're not an obstacle, but they're actually an opportunity for us to develop our mind, to develop our practice, to develop understanding that liberates liberates us from being, we'd say, victimized or being entangled in these states of mind. We know that there are, there's a gradient of torment in the mind. And when we're most tormented, we act out uh, these torments. We, we express our anger, we express our fear, we express our desire, we, we use our body, we use our voice, we just act it out. When, when we're that inflamed, or when we're that possessed, really, by any of these visitors to the mind, belief doesn't touch it. It's only really quite, quite powerful awareness of our intentions before speaking and acting that's going to get a handle on that degree of suffering. Because when we act it out, we may not even know. I mean, actually, we act out a lot of a lot of these torments because we don't even know that they're suffering. They don't even know that they're causing us to suffer. We're so used to them, as I said. We've taken them for granted. So the first training of the Noble Eightfold Path is to begin to exercise some restraint in acting them out by paying attention, being mindfully aware of the intention before speaking or acting. So that when we notice the impulse in the mind to say something or to reach for something or to push something, and we notice that intention, we have a moment, just a single moment to reflect, is this a wise thing to do? And often we can recognize, "Mm, not so good. Or we can decide to choose a more appropriate way of expressing Uh, whatever 
needs to be expressed in a skillful way. But even though we may not be acting them out, and we may have some understanding that this is not skillful to do, we, the mind can be quite obsessed. And in fact, this is where we spend a lot of time in practice. We're not acting it out. Most of us are not acting out uh, hurtfully here today. And yet the mind is still can be quite obsessed with desire, wanting, fear, anxiety, jealousy, envy, you know, the list. And so the Buddha offered the second training of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is to practice mindfulness, to cultivate this momentary ability to remember, to recognize the present moment's experience. And if we can do that in an ongoing way, just remember, recognize this, recognize this, recognize this, then we interrupt when these visitors come to the mind, we interrupt the momentum of them. You know, we don't just get in on uh, get in on an obsessive rant about something. We may f- notice the rant and we recognize it. We break its momentum temporarily. And it picks up again and it gets on a rant, starts on a roll, and we notice that. And we do it again and again and again. And eventually, the moment-to-moment mindfulness is stronger or more continuous than the arising of the visitor to the mind. And in this way, mindfulness puts a... ah, gives the visitor to the mind a restraining order. Behave now. (laughs) Don't bother me quite so much. And this is an effective way to begin to uh, calm the mind down from its tormented state. But even then, the visitor can still arise, you know, conditions change, and uh, conditions change, and we're not always at the top of our game. Our mindfulness is not always right there. And so the Buddha offered the third training of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is insight, or Vipassana. And here, what we're doing is we're developing the clear understanding of the way things are. And what we're doing is we're, we're purifying our understanding so that even with uh, extraordinary conditions that might usually condition the arising of one of these visitors in the mind, we understand it. We understand these are the conditions that give rise to this suffering state of mind. And because of this new understanding, this insightful understanding, and the continuity of being willing to see it over and over and over again, then we don't buy into it. It's not that we're just exercising restraint from speaking and acting. It's not just that we're exercising uh, mindfulness. We actually understand things differently. And when we understand things differently, then we don't have to kind of be so... what. Um, I was going to say we don't have to be so diligent but let me just say that when we understand things that clearly we are diligent we see things clearly in every moment so these are the this is the spectrum of or the gradient of uh, torments from acting them out to being obsessed to being uh, ambushed we might say uh, by latent uh, potentials in the mind
So how do we work with them now that we're beginning to uh, understand, we're beginning to have a skillful view, really, or skillful understanding of these states of mind? How do we how do we work with them? How what 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 can we do with them? The first um, condition for learning and being willing to work with them, is we need the information that these states of mind are dangerous. Now we can believe that, just from what I've said and pointed to, and you can see, yeah, they're, they're, they're dangerous. They, they really make us miserable. They make us obsessed. They make us crazy sometimes. We just get, uh, you know, we get possessed by these states of mind and we just act out things in a non-skillful way, sometimes hurting ourselves, sometimes hurting others. Uh, sometimes just being obsessive. And so this information is helpful. We need to hear this. It's not pleasant. It's, we might not. We might like to deny it or avoid it, but nevertheless, we still need to hear it. And it is said that there's more than a thousand, <laughs> unfortunately, more than a thousand of these visitors to the mind. Now, the big three are, you know, attachment, aversion, and delusion. So just, just work with these three and you'll be doing well. But <clears throat> sometimes I've, I've tried to, I've asked people in retreats to kind of suggest the, the, uh, some of these thousand just so we can have an idea, you know, what they might be and we can recognize them. But just knowing that, they, that there are these, uh, a great variety of states of mind that cause us, cause us to suffer helps us to now begin to recognize them. Now, the challenge with recognizing these states of mind is that we have misunderstood them for so long. We've taken them for granted. We have a belief system about them that allows them free reign in our mind. But now we want to recognize them for what they really are, a danger, a source of suffering, a, a torment. And so we have to massage our understanding, we have to bring our right view into play so that when they arise in the mind, we can recognize, oh, this, this is one of those states of mind that causes suffering, causes me to feel anxious or fearful or upset or obsessed. And when we can recognize them, we can perceive them, we can, we can begin to recognize their, what we call their unique characteristic. How do they actually feel? What do they actually do in the mind? Once, once jealousy arise, arrives in the mind, what does it do to you? What does it do to your thoughts? What does it do to how you think about other people? Or envy, or anger, or fear, or any of them. So we ask these questions, well, what is the nature of this state of mind? Because whatever we're experiencing when they arise in the mind... Whatever we experience in the mind and whatever experience in the body is conditioned by that visitor to the mind, this is what we call the unique characteristic, the distinctive characteristic of the state of mind. And so when any of these visitors arrive in the mind, we can understand that it is useful to spend time with it, not just to get rid of it, not to blame yourself, but to spend time with it in order to 
in an interested way, learn about its nature. So, you know, this is a this is a pretty radical shift from our normal conditioned behavior of get rid of it at all costs. And the easiest way to get rid of it is take a pill. But what we're doing with Dharma practice is saying, okay, I'll take a pill for the for the worst of it, but let me let me look at this. Let me see if I can begin to understand this in a different way than it's how I am, it's who I am, it's the way it is, it's intrinsic to me. It's not. It's a visitor. So this is a quite a radical shift of understanding that we're now going to apply or try to remember when any of these visitors arrive in the mind so that we can be encouraged to actually spend time with them, not discouraged that they have arisen, but rather interested to observe and really learn what what it is we can about them. Now, when I say to be interested in to learn from them or about them, I don't mean to think about them. Thinking is only going to kind of reaffirm what we already know. What we need to do is develop the observing power of the mind, the mindfulness, that can actually feel its way into what the real experience is, not what we think about anger, not what we think about fear, not what we think about anxiety, but what it actually feels like and what it actually does in the body, in the mind. So somebody was talking about feeling into, and again, this is, this is really what we want to do, is learn how to feel the unique nature of any of these mental states and name them. Because to name any of these emotions or to name any of these mental states begins to take its power away. Just like, you know, when you feel when you feel ill at ease or you feel sick or you've got some symptoms and you don't yet know what it is, it really is really bothersome. It's really like it, it, it's worse. But as soon as as soon as someone can diagnose it for you or you can diagnose it for yourself and you say, Oh, that's what it is. I had shingles recently. I don't know, shingles are really, 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 really painful. But I'm usually quite healthy, and so I started having these symptoms, and I didn't even recognize them as symptoms of being sick. And somehow I just didn't, didn't get there until it got really bad. And then it was like, oh my God, there's something going on here. And, you know, the doctor confirmed, mm-hmm, shingles. And then just knowing that it was shingles was... The pain was still there, but there was some kind of relief in the mind, like, okay, now I know what it is. Same with the, these visiting, visiting uh, forces to the mind. As soon as we can name them, oh, then we can work with them. Then they're, then there's a contain, they're, they're a unit. They're, they've got, they've got a, they've got a nature that we can observe. It's not just an amorphous mistake. It's something that we can really get. So we want to begin to recognize, recognize. Uh, their name, recognize their uh, qualities, their characteristics. But when they arise initially, usually our old conditioning kicks in and we say, I've got to get rid of this. We get anxious, we get fretful, we get like, I don't like this unpleasant state of mind. So the second step in working with any of these states of mind is to relax. 
Now, to relax means to accept the fact that this is the way it is for me for now. Clunk. Oh, okay. This is the way it is for me for now. We're not in denial. We're not in avoidance. We're not trying to minimize. We're not trying to run away from it. We're not pretending it's otherwise. We're letting mindful awareness do its job of not deceiving us. This is it. This is the way it is. And when we can just accept, then we, we, we can relax. We can relax the body. We can relax the mind. We're not trying to get rid of it. Then we can actually begin to feel our way into it. As Utejaniya said, and I mentioned earlier today, the mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. Meaning, what comes into the mind, we quite often don't choose. Right? If we could choose everything that arose in the mind, we'd just say, mind, be happy. Think only nice thoughts. Be content with everything. You can say that. <laughs> the mind doesn't do it, does it? So the mind is not ours. It is filled with causes and conditions. Causes and conditions are unfolding, and we get to experience the mind. But once, once whatever arises in the mind, then we have to do something about it. Only we can do anything about it. One of which is to be aware. If we're not aware, then we end up reacting out of deeply conditioned habit. If we're aware, then we can choose to respond out of understanding. So when we begin by recognizing, we have the information to allow us or encourage us to recognize these states of mind, and we relax, accepting the fact that this is the way it is for me for now, then we want to think in, uh, intelligently about how to work with this. Now remember what I've said. These things arise due to causes and conditions, one of which is unwise attention. It's a visitor to the mind. Remind yourself of that. It's not who you are, how you are. It's not inevitable. It's a temporary phenomena. Okay. When we have that, when we can reflect in this way, we can exercise some restraint. We don't have to act them out, and we don't have to get rid of them. If we understand correctly, it's a visitor that's arisen due to causes and conditions. We can relax. But we can also exercise the restraint of not acting them out because of this right view that we remind ourselves, or these skillful views of these torments of the mind that we can remind ourselves of. But sometimes, let's face it, sometimes these visitors to the mind, they arise, or they arrive in the mind with a full force, and we're overwhelmed. Sometimes we're just overwhelmed with sadness, or fear, or anxiety, or jealousy, or craving. And when we're overwhelmed, we can't, what overwhelm means is that we can't be mindful of it. So in that situation, when you feel like it's it's overwhelming, then we want to turn our attention away from that experience to something that's neutral, something that we don't have a 
tormented relationship with. And usually, or quite often, if it's an experience of the environment, notice what you're seeing, notice what you're hearing, notice what you're feeling on the surface of your skin. Often these are neutral, more neutral than what is tormenting the mind. And so if we can cultivate this attention to a momentary sense perception, we can sustain the continuity of mindfulness and get some relief from the torment. This is, this is an effective use of mindfulness. To replace the object of torment with something that's neutral as a way of not being overwhelmed by the tormented state of mind. Then we can, uh, when we recognize any of these uh, states of mind and we relax, uh, accepting the fact that this is the way it is, and we're exercise some, exercising some restraint, we're not acting them out, then we can reframe our understanding. And the reframing of our understanding is that, really, this is not a problem. It's an opportunity to learn about suffering. Not just to suffer blindly, and lead, which leads to more suffering, but to suffer or to experience unpleasantness with wisdom. To really understand, oh, this is the nature of this kind of suffering. This is the nature of this kind of torment in the mind. And when we do that, or when we reframe our understanding, we're recognizing that we can actually work with it. It's not a, a judgment of how you're doing. It's not a condemnation of your capacity, but rather it's really an opportunity to learn something, learn about something that you don't know sufficiently yet. That's the way to understand it. It arises and we get entangled in it because we don't yet understand it fully. As Utejaniya said, it's not you who removes these defilements. Wisdom does that job. So until we have enough understanding, or sufficient understanding, or a wise understanding of these visitors to the mind, they will continue to arise and will continue to suffer by being entangled with them. So after reframing our understanding to encourage us to bear with, to feel into, to work with, to be interested in these states of mind, then we can be mindful. Being mindful of them means feel it. Feel it. But so often when any of these torments arise in the mind, we get entangled and snared in the narrative, in the story of my anger. Why I'm so angry. Why I'm so self-righteously angry. Why I should be angry. And what a jerk they've been anyway. Or why I'm jealous. Or why I'm fearful. Or why I need that thing that I'm desiring. And we, when we get, as we pay attention to the story, the story just goes on and on and on. And it has a very uh, self-justifying uh, fuel. It just goes on and on and on and on. So we want to recognize, oh, this is the story of desire. This is the story of my 
fear. There's my story of my whatever, whatever it is that's arisen in the mind. And, and recognize that we can't figure out the story to put the state of mind aside. We actually have to put the story aside so that we can be with the state of mind. Now an interesting thing happens when you can, when you can recognize, oh, this is a story and just set it aside and say, that thing is going on forever. You know, we've carried some stories in our hearts and our minds for decades. You know, old hurts, old bad relationships, relationships that went bad, and we're just still carrying anger, irritation, frustration, judgment about ourselves, about the other. Those stories, they just go on and on and on, don't they? Okay, stories don't necessarily end, but we can change the story. Okay, so what we want to be doing is, is actually being mindfully aware of the experience of that state of mind, feeling into it, feeling it. Because an interesting thing happens. When you can, or when the mindfulness, when you're, when you're interested and you have the courage and you're willing to just feel into any of these states of mind, and let me just say, they're all unpleasant. They're all unpleasant. So we have to be willing to experience unpleasantness fully, fully consciously, with full awareness. What happens, though, is we see something, we, we, we learn something immediately that I can tell you, but until you learn it for yourself through your own experience, it doesn't have its effect. These states of mind don't last very long. If you're listening to the story, it'll seem like they last forever. But if you're actually feeling into the experience itself, you're there, you're there, it's changing, it's changing, it's morphing, it's fluxing, it's gone. Like that. That knowledge of the impermanence, the radical, the the incessant impermanence of these states of mind is invaluable. Because what you understand from that direct observation is that you don't have to get rid of these states of mind. You don't have to get rid of your desire. You don't have to get rid of your fear. You don't have to get rid of your anger. You just have to be willing to experience them come to an end. And they will. Just think back. What, 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 what torment were you observing today? Were you, were you tormented by today? And where is it now? <laughs> it's not there, is it? It's gone. But if we don't see that it came to an end, the next time it arises, we'll still be tormented by it. So the next time any of them arise in the mind, just see if you can be willing. See if you can encourage yourself to feel it. Feel it. Don't get caught in the story. Just feel actually what it feels like in the heart. What it feels and what it, how it conditions what you feel in the body. Just feel it. For as long as it takes. Okay? The fear of the unpleasantness is what keeps us from doing that. We fear unpleasantness. We want comfort. 
But as I say, as I've often said, comfort is not a goal worthy of your efforts. Liberation is. So bear with the unpleasantness. Know, know that it's going to be unpleasant. Just know that. And know that we can, if we, if we encourage ourselves with this right understanding, encourage ourselves, let me just feel it, let me just be with that. What does it actually feel like? It doesn't last. First of all, it's unpleasant. It doesn't last very long. And you can't control it. You can't control when it arises. You can't control when it goes away. And these three knowledges that we gain about these states of mind, that they're impermanent, they're unpleasant, and they're uncontrollable, these are the three universal characteristics of all phenomena. Anicca, dukkha, and anatta. This is insight. This is vipassana. So as we learn to observe these states of mind, and we see these three characteristics, we see, we experience, not by thinking about them. We don't have to think this is impermanent. We don't have to think this is unpleasant. We have to experience it, feel it. Then insight arises. The knowledge that they're impermanent, the knowledge that they're suffering or they're unpleasant, unstable, and the knowledge that they're uncontrollable, they're they arise due to causes and conditions beyond your control. These insights, these knowledges are liberating. That's what we're practicing here, is this steadiness of mind, this willingness to experience, this openness and willingness, interest in really understand, deeply understanding the way things are. So all of the uh, challenges that we face in our practice, all of the mm, really unpleasant mental states, whatever it is, just see if you can remember how to work with them. If you can remember to recognize them, relax, uh, exercise some restraint, reframe your understanding, feel into them to receive their feeling with their feeling tone, then you'll, you'll realize the insights, the three insights that liberate the mind from suffering. This is our work. It's not easy. I know. I make it sound easy. It's not easy. It's really, it's really hard. It's hard because of our conditioning, huh? our, our old habitual conditioning, our sense of ourselves, who we think we are, what we, what we, how we are, and who we are, and what we can do and what we can't do, and you know the baggage that we carry around with us. We're so identified with it. But it's not so. It's just not so. It's just not who we are. These are just visitors to the mind. And we can, we can work with them. Not in this no-fear, muscular, you know, striving, ambitious, grit-your-teeth way. It's not, that's not going to do it. But in this willingness to be really close to and intimate with and to learn about these states of mind. So really practice, insight practice is an invitation to grow in knowledge through direct experience and in the process to free uh, the mind from these very self-limiting identities.
Nobody, is, nobody has forced it upon us. We've learned it from our parents and peers and culture. It's true. And our own uh, collusion in the delusion. But now that we hear the Dharma, and this is what the Dharma is, the Dharma is pointing to another way, another way of living, another way of being with these common experiences. It's not becoming inhuman, it's not doing something superhuman, it's just another way of understanding, another way of working with, another way of approaching the inevitable events of life. This is what the Dharma offers. And insight offers us the tools for freeing the heart, freeing the mind from suffering, tormented, being tormented. As long as you are aware of the defilements, you're doing well, Sayadaw Tejaniya says. In order to understand these torments of the mind, you have to watch them again and again. What can you gain from just having or expecting a good experience? If you understand the nature of these torments, they will dissolve. And once you're able to handle these torments, good experiences will naturally follow. Most yogis, or many yogis, make the mistake of expecting good experiences instead of trying to work with and being willing to work with these torments. So just ask yourself, are we here practicing in order to hopefully, expectantly, have some good experiences? You know, peace, love, light, and bliss? Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. In fact, we are. That's right. <laughs> but the way to it is being willing to work with these torments. And we can. It takes a knowledge. It takes intelligent application of that knowledge. And it takes insight. Let's sit for a moment and let these words quiet down. Always remember that it is not you who removes these torments. Wisdom does the job. And when you are continuously aware, wisdom unfolds naturally. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.